So here I am. A hero. A villain. I'm the guy who can do the things that Batman can't. Become someone that Batman won't. Am I the man that Bruce wanted me to become? Not even close. But someday soon, he'll realize I'm exactly who he needs. Welcome back and welcome to bonus episode number six, where we run through Batman Annual Volume 1, number 25, Dataless and Icarus. The return of Jason Todd. Plays need players, and although Batman's name is on the cover of this one, this story isn't about him. No, the lead in this one is none other than the blackest sheep, the little wing, the jaybird, the red hood. The infamous Jason Todd. Jason first appeared in Batman number 357 in March of 1983 and has two separate origin stories, the latter quite possibly leading to his death. Before we get into Jason's story, we need to explain the crisis on infinite Earths. In an attempt to streamline their many stories and universes, DC had a mega crossover event called Crisis on Infinite Earths. Every major title in the DC universe was involved in this story. A lot of superheroes died during the crisis, heavy hitters like Supergirl and The Flash, no one was safe. When the dust settled, DC had one new universe. All that came before, wiped out. There were four survivors who remembered the events of the crisis on Infinite Earth. Superman of Earth 2 and his wife Lois Lane. He was an older Superman with the Reed Richards working. Superboy from Earth Prime, or Superboy Prime as he's known, and Alexander Luthor of Earth 3. Luthor created a pocket paradise where he and the rest could live as survivors of DC's past storied histories and witnesses to its future. When I say pre-crisis or post-crisis, this is what I mean. Back to Jason Todd is 6 feet tall, he's 225 pounds, soaking wet, so he's a burly dude. Pre-crisis Jason Todd has blue eyes, he had red hair that he dyed black upon becoming Robin pre-crisis on Infinite Earth. But post-crisis, Jason has mostly been shown with black hair. Jason's first origin story resembled that of the first Robin, Dick Grayson, whose parents were acrobats killed by a mob boss. Jason's parents, Joseph and Trina Todd, were acrobats as well, but they were murdered by a new Batman villain at the time, Killer Croc. After proving himself to Dick Grayson, Todd is given a Robin costume and becomes the second heir apparent to the Batman mantle, the second Robin. But then Crisis on Infinite Earths occurred. With the merging of all universes into one, Jason's origin story was retconned and his post-crisis story was, in my opinion, much cooler, simpler, and unique. That said, post-crisis Jason Todd was a bit of a bad boy. Jason was retconned as an orphan child to Willis and Catherine Todd. He was a street tough who meets Batman for the first time in Crime Alley while he's stealing the wheels off the Batmobile. After being placed in a school for troubled use, Jason is taken under Batman's wing when he discovers the school's main curriculum is crime and becomes the second Robin. I think his post-crisis recon has given him a much more unique character, truly. Jason wasn't your daddy's Robin. Jason was violent, flippant, self-absorbed. He smoked, he drank, he tried to stop, he can't. And worse than any of these things, he had a penchant for abusing his power while at the same time routinely ignoring Batman's orders and directives. A violence and ignorance that would lead to his downfall. There was a not so small portion of Batman fans who hated him. This hatred led to one of the most seminal Batman moments of the modern age. In a story titled Death in the Family, Jason discovers the woman he thought was his mother was really just his stepmom and begins a quest to find his birth parent. When he does, they reconnect, only for us to discover that Jason's birth mother was a drug addict, being blackmailed by Batman's greatest enemy, the Joker. Worse, she tells the Joker Jason is secretly Robin and the Joker kidnaps her, using the information to lure Jason to him across the ocean in Africa. Here's where the fans hating him came into play. 
The ending of Death in the Family was left entirely up to the fans. If they wanted Jason to live, there was a 1-900 number for that. If they wanted Jason to die, there was a 900 number for that too. By a very slim vote, I'm talking Floridian hanging chads, Bush versus Gore slim. Jason Todd was marked for death by fans at the hands of the clown prince of crime and in the hands of the Joker, death is rarely quick and never clean. In one of the most grisly scenes in comic book history, with the support of the fans behind him, Joker beat Jason Todd to within an inch of his life with a crowbar in an abandoned booby-trapped warehouse in Africa. Jason, he's got grit, survived the beating and managed to make it to the warehouse door, but he couldn't pick the lock because of the violence done to him. The building exploded. Jason died trying to shield his mother from the blast, and she died shortly thereafter, but not before telling Batman that her son died a hero. But death, my friends, is only the beginning. We've got me, we've got you, we've got no further ado, we've got Batman. Annual number 25, Daedalus and Icarus, the return of Jason Todd. Let's get into it. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns. Kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. The writer on this one is the writer responsible for bringing Jason back from the dead in the Batman titles. He is a phenomenal writer. Ladies and gentlemen, Judd Winnick. The pencils on this one, no slouch, Mr. Shane Davis. Inks, Mark Morales. Colors, Alex Sinclair. Letters, Travis Lanham. Assistant editor, Brandon Montclair. Editor, Bob Shrek. Executive editor of this issue is Dan DeDio. And the cover of this one is done by the incomparable Jock. Jock's cover on this one is a cover I call the instant classic. In black negative space, we see Batman on his knees, his cloak draping the floor around him. His head is slightly lowered and there's an ominous red light shining down on him, casting his face in shadow. In Batman's arms, his arm dangling at his side, we see Jason Todd, bathed in that same red light, unconscious, in the codename and costume he took after his return from the dead, that of the Red Hood. He's got a shiny red helmet on his lowered head, a leather jacket, unzipped, dark pants, and a pair of military boots with large buckles. It's beautiful to look at. Red Hood's mask and leather jacket remind me of an impressionist painting, and I love that. Starry Night by Van Gogh is my favorite painting ever. I don't know why it comes to mind. We open to page one and we get the eyes of Jason Todd up close in a red domino mask with white mirrored lenses covering his eyes. The caption box says, he is Jason Todd. And we go through the page with different shots of Jason Todd donning his Red Hood costume. He's putting on his belt, sliding his arms into his leather jacket and placing a blade into his jacket. So I imagine he had the sheath sewn into the leather. This blade is based on the Chris or Karis, and according to the illustrated history of weaponry, the Chris is the traditional knife of what are now the nations of Malaysia and Indonesia. Intended for stabbing, the blade is of variable length and can be either straight or curvy. In a curved blade Chris, each bend is called a luck. Jason's is the curved blade version and it's about a foot long, so I wish plenty of luck to his lucks run into. The final panel on this page, we see Jason Todd darning his red hood, which looks much more like a sleek one-piece full-face motorcycle helmet. While he's getting dressed, we're getting information. Quote, make no mistake, it is him. And although his actions are so single of purpose, his goals, be they dark or just, have been clearly stated in both word and action. The means, the manner, the miracle of his return is still a mystery. We turn the page on a mystery and finish the sentence as we see Red Hood suited and booted, his gloved right hand pulling the glove down on his left. He's under a solitary yellow light, slightly off-center in front of a brown brick gun wall. So I assume he's in one of his armories. There are six guns at least on the wall behind him. 
I know one of them is an M16, but after that, just choose any five guns from any Call of Duty and I promise you, you'll find one of them up there. Red Hood is armed to the teeth. Above him is the title of this annual, Daedalus and Icarus, The Return of Jason Todd, in the same red of his Red Hood. Page 3 begins above an abandoned warehouse in the middle of the desert. The camera zooms inside and we see a bruised and bloody Robin known to us as Jason Todd. He's got the red shirt with the short green sleeves and yellow collar. He's got the green domino mask and he's got blood running from his nose. There's a large blood splatter behind his head and above him we see a crowbar. We're told the story begins where it ended. The next panel, we see the crown prince of crime himself in a purple jumpsuit, his skin a green tinged white, his hair slick, green and greasy with high arching eyebrows and a violent wide red smile. The Joker is beating Robin viciously with the crowbar because he knows Robin's identity too. This is what they meant by it begins where it ends. This is the day Jason died. We get a shot of the Joker in profile, his long face filled with malicious glee before the camera shifts back to Robin and his mother. And Robin's in rough shape. His mother is tied up to one of the posts. There are cardboard boxes in the background and in the foreground an explosive device. Three sticks of dynamite on a timer that reads 57 seconds in red digital numbers. In the next panel, we see a red truck speeding along a desert highway. The driver, the Cape Crusader, and he is kicking up dust. We go back into the warehouse to see Robin and his mother. She's freed and is helping Robin walk to the door of the warehouse. In the final panel, we see Robin's mother struggle to get the door open desperately as Robin sits slumped against the box in the foreground. Batman is on his way, like Batman's always on his way. We get a gorgeous panel to open page four. We see the red truck park, but it is in shadow. Batman 2, the right side of the panel, is in shades of red and orange as the factory explodes. The entire panel is drawn in the B-O-O-M of the boom, so the word is the panel. Beautiful creative art, but Batman has failed. Devastating moment. We get a close-up of his pained eyes before he rushes into the debris. I imagine Batman is calling out to Robin as he steps over splintered wood and glass, and in the final panel, he finds the boy Wonder. We see Batman clutching his cape, pushing a steel beam out of his way, and we see a lifeless right hand in a tattered green glove. I think that's great symbolism. His right hand man's lifeless right hand. Great visual storytelling. We get our first ad, and it's one of those above the influence say no to drugs ads. A little creepy, has a tan white kid with long hair transforming into a freckle-faced white kid with green hair. And the caption says, So if you let other people, piece by piece, make you into what they want, even if it's stupid, what happens to you? That's a solid question above the influence. Who knows? The caption on the opening panel on page 5 reads, With death. And we see Robin, his bloody, lifeless face, close up in the first panel. We see Batman in the foreground, his head lowered. We don't see tears, but the way his teeth are clenched and his eyes are in shadow, we know he's crying as he stands over Robin's body. The final panel of this page is almost big enough to be a splash page and is a gorgeous take on the iconic image of Batman carrying Robin's body out of the warehouse rubble from death in the family. Robin, his right arm dangling, lays dead in the arms of the Dark Knight. We get another ad for Above the Influence on the next page. This time it's a teenage girl with arms that have been stretched so long that they go past her feet and off the page like strings of spaghetti. Very strange. We're on page six now and we've got a beautiful four panel, two page spread. We're behind a figure shrouded in darkness wearing Superman's cape first, the large golden symbol of hope shining. This shadowy Super X is staring at different images of the planet Earth of varying sizes and angles. The caption boxes in this panel say, But we have learned that time is more fluid than believed, that the anger and frustration of a powerful boy trapped between his existence and nothingness could change the world that we know. 
So we know now that this is Superboy Prime after Crisis on Infinite Earths. He is in the quote-unquote paradise that Alexander Luthor created for them. The next panel, we see just how powerful Superboy Prime is as he punches into the images in front of him, shattering them. We see jagged shards scattering and we have members of the Doom Patrol in the fragments, a close-up of Robot Man's copper face, Negative Man's bandage heading trench coat. Negative Man has on a snazzy pair of triangle black shades. We get a close-up of the green-skinned Beast Boy or Changeling and a skeleton on fire. I don't know who that skeleton is. If anybody knows what member of the Doom Patrol that is, let me know in the comments. The next panel, we see Superboy Prime. In my notes, I wrote Superbly Prime by accident. So Superboy Prime going forward will be Superbly Prime. I like that. The next panel, we see Superbly Prime really going to work. He's smashing these paradise walls and using heat vision. The shards flying around him in this one are all different images of Donna Troy, aka the original Wonder Girl. While Superbly Prime is hammering away at the paradise wall, we're learning through the caption boxes that every time he hits the wall, he is changing history. And in the final panel, we have a close-up of Superbly Prime's face as he hammers away at the paradise wall and he is letting his heat vision go. I love how the heat vision is drawn, the red lines aren't directly connected to his eyeballs, but a little out in front, like his eyes heat up the air in front of him. That's beautiful. Mr. Davis is working right now. In this panel, the Paradise Shards are different images of Hawkman. All of these heroes we're seeing, from the Doom Patrol to Hawkman, have some of the most convoluted histories in the DC Universe. This is what Crisis on Infinite Earths was trying to correct. And Superbly Prime is too. The dialogue box in this panel reads, Superbly Prime is trying to set history right. So here's what happens after the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths, the abridged version. The universe moved forward but became a darker place. Batman's stories became much darker and grimmer, both in canon and out, with Jason Todd's death and a death in the family being a perfect example. Later on, through a storyline called Identity Crisis, we learned the heroes took to questionable methods to stop villains, such as mind-wiping their opponents. Two of these mind-wipes, Dr. Light and the Top, Teen Titan and Flash villains respectively, proved to have major ramifications for those heroes when they regained their memories. And there were major ramifications for the entire DC Universe when Batman found out the Justice League violated his trust and wiped his mind as well. Identity Crisis, along with other titles, led a roadmap straight to Infinite Crisis, which is around the time this comic we're reading takes place. Watching the modern universe devolve into darkness, Superbly Prime begins striking the barrier to the paradise because he realizes that every powerful blow he lands alters a dark moment. If this all seems absurd to you, just know, there was a point in DC history where Superman could shoot many versions of himself out of his finger. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity, Infinity Page! Page 8. This Infinity Page is actually the page that would have been printed if Jason Todd lived in the original Death in the Family storyline. We see Jason Todd Robin, no domino mask, his eyes puffy, swollen, and shut, his lifeless body still being cradled in Batman's hands. But this time, Batman is looking up to the heavens, smiling, screaming, He's alive! Thank God! The dialogue box tells us Jason wasn't supposed to die as Batman loads him up into the back of his red pickup and drives off with him, leaving the warehouse behind. There's an ad for the movie The Hills Have Eyes on the next page. A young woman, white with her head pressed against the bottom of the page, while a cut-off gloved hand with filthy fingers pushes her face down. I think I saw this movie when it first came out. The tagline is, The lucky ones die first. And I gotta say, that's a pretty solid tagline for a horror movie. We're out of that convolution and back in the main DC universe now, and we see Robin in Batman's hands as his body gives a death shudder, tears streaming from his eye. The next panel, we get a shot of Superbly Prime hammering against the paradise wall. Next, we're outside of Gotham City, now in the pouring rain, in the perpetual darkness, as a psychedelic purple wave spreads across the city. We find out it is six months after Jason has died, and this wave, bolts of lightning flashing through it, creeps over the headstones in a cemetery. In the final panel on this page, we see the wave passes over a headstone that reads, Here lies Jason Todd. 
On page 10, we enter the casket of Jason Todd as the wave sweeps over his body with the focus on his crossed hands. As the wave washes over them, we see the rotting flesh restored to a healthy tan color and in the final panel, Jason taking three deep panic breaths as he awakens from eternal slumber. That's nice, tight storytelling. Jason wakes up on the inside of a casket to open page 11 and he's in full-on panic mode. He presses his hands against the plush white roof of his casket, screaming, blood in his right eye. He screams so loud his voice pierces the six feet of dirt he's on we get a shot above ground of a hooded stone angel, wings spread behind her, the rain streaming down her eyes like tears as Jason screams from inside the casket. We zoom back into the casket and Jason's pounding on the roof with closed fists, screaming out for Batman as real tears stream down his cheeks like rain. The way he's shouting Batman makes me think of a streetcar named Desire. We get an ad for the US Open of Snowboarding 2006 on the following page. Fun fact, this Open was the first of many professional awards and titles for one of the all-time extreme sport goats, Mr. Sean White. The caption boxes on page 12 tell us Jason wasn't buried in his costume, that he held no keepsakes, no batterings, no tools, nothing that would tie him to the Dark Knight because Batman doesn't do sentimentality this way. Jason had to fall back on instinct and training and push to survive. And we see Jason doing exactly that in the first panel. He's still pushing against the casket before changing tactics and searching in his pockets. Finding nothing there, he tells himself to calm down and we get a close-up of his eyes, one bloodied, both focused. He pulls off his belt, tears the buckle from the leather, and uses it as a digging tool, shoving it into the roof of the casket and telling himself, dig, dig your way out. He gets to work. We get a graphic of his blood-soaked fingertip, the nail on his pointer finger tearing from his hand as he claws into the casket. The final panel on this page, we see Jason's hand emerge from a hole he's broken through the casket's roof. We're back with the crying angel above ground now on page 13 as the storm continues to rage as Jason's right hand bursts forth from the grave. And in the final panel, we see Jason Todd from the waist up, his fingertips bloody, pressing against the muddy ground, his lower half still below the dirt, rain beating against his jet black hair and suit jacket as lightning crackles behind him in the distance. Jason Todd lives. Free of his own grave, Jason's not out of the woods yet. He starts walking. He's lucky, but if you play with skills, good luck will happen. Twelve and a half miles from his hole in the ground, he walks into a couple lost in the storm and meanders in front of their car. This young black man is named Derek Brantley. We don't get the girlfriend's name. Jason collapses in front of their car. Derek kneels beside him wearing a blue dad cap. Looks like the Cleveland Cavs turned backwards, a brown jacket over a green lantern shirt and SJBs. His girlfriend's wearing an orange short sleeve shirt and SJBs as she calls the authorities screaming as tears stream down her cheeks. We see Jason, his eyes rolling back in his head, and we learn that if he was found 10 minutes later, he'd be dead. But I can't believe that. I think Jason, having just cheated death, would have kept his heart beating and feet moving until he was discovered. The kids got moxie. In the final panel on the page, we get a close-up of Jason's blood-stained mouth as he utters, Bruce. Page 15 opens to Jason in a hospital room, both eyes gauzed and covered, a turquoise hospital gown on, a breathing tube covering his mouth, and his skull is bandaged when we hear someone talking off panel. He says Jason's in a coma and was found on foot. We zoom out and see two detectives at the foot of Jason's bed. Joe and Tomas called on scene from New York for their analytical skills. In here, Joe is a young white guy with copper red hair, a gray trench coat, white button-up, red tie, and black pants. Tomas is wearing a blue tie, a brown trench coat with a white button-up, SJBs, and he has a large red cup of coffee in his hand. You know Tomas is a coffee addict. And both men are talking about Jason's condition. Joe says... He had a fractured skull. It caused a brain bleed or some damn thing. They're not even sure if he's brain dead or not. And Tomas asks Joe, well, they said something about flash burns too. What's up with that? And Joe says the kid was in some kind of explosion. We get a close-up in the final panel of Tomas, and he's asking, And then what? They dressed him in a suit and buried him someplace? 
So Jason still has every injury the Joker inflicted on him, and he still crawled out of that casket. Grit Moxie, Jason Todd. Page 16 opens to a horizontal close-up of Jason, and we can see the left side of his bandaged head. There's a large pool of blood here and an IV inserted into the carotid artery of his neck. As Joe says, yeah, he was, and he dug himself out. Joe, amazing detective that he is, wanted to run the wood slivers, but couldn't because Jason had to be rushed into surgery. The two men go back and forth about the extent of Jason's injuries, and Joe says, Blown up, then buried. Before saying that reminds him of the story of Rasputin. To which Tomas replies, It's much closer to the story of Lazarus. Both of these stories are about death. Rasputin was poisoned with cyanide through tea cakes and wine, and when the poison didn't work, he was shot in the chest. When that didn't work, he was shot again in the forehead. His body was wrapped and he was dumped in a Russian river. According to most accounts, Rasputin was not a man beloved by many people and his story can relate to Jason's in its brutality, but Rasputin stayed dead and Tomas knows scripture, hence his mention of Lazarus. In the book of John, Jesus Christ raises Lazarus from the dead four days after his death, the last miracle Jesus performed before his own death and resurrection. Back to, Tomas says the kid kept asking for a guy named Bruce. In the final panel, we have another close up on the battered Jason as Joe says the kid said this Bruce was his father. We open page 17 outside of the missing persons office of the Gotham City Police Department. The camera shifts into the room and we see Jason's fingerprint on the screen as Joe, in his reading glasses, searches for a match on the print. But they don't know that if you run with the Batman, your prints don't show up anywhere on Earth. So their search draws a blank. The GCPD on Tomas's orders, I'm sure, search in a 10 mile radius for any type of hole Jason could have clawed his way out of. But if you remember, Jason walked 12.5 miles before he was found, well outside of the search radius. Grit. We get a panel of a red-haired groundskeeper in SJB colored overalls and purple button-up. He's scratching his head in front of the crying angel headstone. Jason's headstone, before we see a shovel repacking the dirt. In the final panel, the groundskeeper is saying it may be grave robbers while the man I assume runs the graveyard. White guy, Carl Winslow Hare, shade brown, says he doesn't know what happened and he doesn't want to know. What he does know is that was Bruce Wayne's kid and nobody wants a grave robber problem with the king of Gotham City. We get an ad for a statue replicating the comic cover Batman and Robin, The Boy Wonder. It's a beautiful statue designed by John G. Matthews. Page 18 opens one year later and we're outside of the Huntington Convalescent Home, a tan building with a red shingle roof. It is the middle of the night and as it often does in Gotham, it's pissing rain. We move inside the asylum and see a young man laying in bed in a padded room. He's wearing a green shirt and he's been labeled Patient John Doe, number 265, chronic vegetative state. Brain activity is of limited capacity. Completely unresponsive to any and all stimuli. Severe brain damage is likely, but specifics are unknown. This is, of course, Jason, and we get a close-up of his face. The left side of his skull has a large stitched scar, and he's in a deep sleep before his eyes shoot open. He exits his room and shambles down the hall in matching turquoise shirt, pants, and slippers. By the way he's walking, we can assume he has brain damage. From the dialogue boxes, we find out he's moving on pure instinct. But sometimes, that's all we need. In the final panel, we see Jason exiting the asylum in the rain, heading towards parts unknown. Page 19 opens and the rain has stopped. Jason is in the slums of Gotham City, skyscrapers sprawling all around him as he stands huddled outside of a clothing store, staring at a red hooded jacket with yellow striping. In the next panel, we see Jason now wearing the hoodie in the frame of a broken bakery window. He is hunched over a baguette in his hand as he chomps into the middle of the bread. Next, we see Jason asleep atop a cardboard box in an alley surrounded by dirty water and black garbage bags. Another year passes and we find him in the final panel on this page sleeping, now in a green tracksuit with yellow hemming around the collar and sleeves. Someone off panel says, Get out of my spot, punk! We see a tall, husky, bald white guy with a brown beard wearing a black leather vest, white t-shirt, SJBs, and construction boots. 
He's pounding his right fist into his left hand threateningly and asking Jason if he heard him. He tells Jason to get his ass up. The camera shifts to Jason, still obliviously sleeping as two homeless guys behind him plead for him to be left alone. Guy in a gray ball cap and SJB jacket says the spots don't belong to anybody. Another guy in a brown trench coat and black scully says this bald guy is messing with their meal ticket because the kid is always sharing the things he steals. We zoom inside on Baldi's face as one of the men tells him they once saw the kid walk out of a store with a nine pound turkey. Jason is working out there. To which Baldi replies, never gave me nothing and he's in my spot. Before kicking Jason square in the ribs, Jason clutches his stomach moaning and Baldi, trying to add injury to injury, raises a 10 foot to curb stop the former Robin in the final panel. 21 opens to Baldi foot falling where Jason's head was just laying. Before we see Jason, trash can in hand, clobber the man from the back like they're in an Attitude Era hardcore match. The caption boxes in these two panels read, You may find that those instincts of his that lay like a sleeping dog may wake and bite. Reminds me of something my nana used to say, hit dogs holler, and Jason definitely proving he's going to bite right after he hollers. We see him do a perfect backflip over the man's head just as a homeless man wakes up from all the commotion. This guy's wearing a gray jacket, sky blue shirt, and he wipes the coal out of his eyes as Jason is in mid-flip. We find out this is Tommy Carbone and that Tommy wasn't always a homeless drunk. He used to be a drunk who worked for the mob in a gun running operation. Page 22 opens and we see Tommy's memories. One night on the job, Tommy and his boys ran into Batman and Robin and Tommy is having deja vu. The first panel of the page, we see Batman above a distant rooftop in the background as Jason Todd in full Robin gear with a smile on his face, his cape bright and yellow billowing behind him, lands on Tommy's shoulders with his knees and has his right hand raised to strike. In the next panel, we see Jason, the rooftops above him empty, an expressionless look on his face, his knees on the shoulders of Baldy, his right arm raised in preparation to strike. In the next panel, we see Robin's fisted hands smash into both sides of Tommy's head. The panel following, Jason does the exact same thing to Baldy. In the final panel, Tommy is staring at Jason, the bald man laying unconscious between his legs, and Tommy remembers. Tommy immediately runs to a phone booth beneath a stoplight on page 23, and he's telling a suited man shrouded in darkness that he's sure he just found Robin. The man in shadow says he knows someone who might be interested. And Tommy's still asleep, so he says it'll cost for the information. And the information moves up the chain fast. We see the man in shadow talking to a Middle Eastern man wearing a kefir. Then in the next panel, in a dark alley with a woman with flowing hair and the most stylish trench coat in the game. It is a JJP, full length to the ankles. Stun on him. Stun on him. The man is telling this woman she'll have the boy tomorrow. We zoom in and we see this is Talia al Ghul, daughter to international terrorist Raz al Ghul. And estranged white to the Batman. We all choose our canon, and I like to think Batman and Talia are married. Estranged, but married. And Talia is Arabian with brown hair. She has the collar of her JJP trench coat up around her chin, and she's telling the man the boy was supposed to be delivered tonight. The next panel, we're outside of the window of a brown building, and someone inside the window asks if anyone is left. In the final panel, we get a gorgeous close-up of Talia, a sparkle in her amber eye, and she's telling the person that everyone who knew Jason Todd is still alive is dead. We enter a sprawling mansion on page 24. High ceilings, red walls, golden mirrors, and chandeliers. We see Tali is at the top of a flight of stairs talking to the demon's head himself, Mr. Raz Al Ghul. He has his back to her, the Reed Richards hairstyle, brown on top. A regal green cloak that will make Dr. Doom sit up and take notice. It stretches down to the floor, and Raz is staring out of a large bay window. Raz at this point in the story is over 700 years old. The camera shifts to let us stare at Raz and Talia through this window as Raz says that all of her secrecy has been for nothing because Jason has too much brain damage. We see Jason being escorted through the courtyard of the palace by armed guard as Roz wonders aloud why the detective, as he refers to Batman, would create a ruse like this. And Talia says, 
if it is a ruse. In the final panel, we get a close-up of Roz. He's got silver eyes in this panel. He's got the full Manchu goatee. And he says, Very well. You may keep him. Find an answer. That would be worth all the trouble you've gone to. So Talia can keep the kid as long as she figures out what happened to him. Roz is talking about Jason like he's a dog she found on the street. We didn't ask for the Red Sonja comic book from Wildstorm. Admittedly, I don't know much about Red Sonja except that she's a badass who wields a mean sword. This ad is for the devil's hand and we see Sonja crouch down while a jacked white dude with black hair raises a clawed hand to the heavens. It's giving me Atari game cover vibes. Page 25 opens to a shot of Jason being led into the castle, a vacant expression on his face. Another year passes. Jason is sitting hunched over in a chair staring out of a window of Roz's palace. Roz says from off panel that he's grown tired of housing Jason. He calls the kid a pet and says Jason's taking up too much of Talia's time. We see Talia, her arms folded, white blouse, and she's saying that Jason's grown stronger and still has the hands team on deck. But Roz isn't listening to this. He says Jason's stronger because he ate, and his skills are only defensive, only turned on when he's threatened with violence. Roz goes on to say that Jason's a walking vegetable, and that's all he'll ever be. Talia mentions letting Bruce Wayne know about Jason, but we see Roz raise a hand in the final panel. He absolutely forbids it, saying, He would wage war upon us. I see no advantage at this time. A day may come when the boy has a purpose, but today, no. We turn the page and we see Roz has aged considerably in the last year, saying Jason is useless. He walks, his back hunched through the halls of the palace, Talia behind him. He tells Talia, stopping at a hidden panel in a doorframe, that he's sending Jason away to a place where the boy will be cared for out of respect to both the detective and Talia before bending at the waist to punch a code into the keypad. A gray metal door slides open and Roz steps inside, telling Talia that he's grown weak and the time has come again. The door closes behind him and we see Talia wait for a moment before looking over her shoulder in the final panel. We find ourselves in a dungeon on page 27. There are two robe guards covered head to foot in purple robes at the entrance to this dungeon as a topless Ra's al Ghul stands waist high in a magma colored liquid. He speaks to the guards watching the door saying, I know that despite your oath of obedience, the temptation of immortality beckons in front of you my acolytes. Before walking forward into the magma colored liquid, he says to enter a Lazarus pit surely means certain death. So Lazarus pits for certain people gives them longevity. It makes them live longer. Roz is over 700 years old. That is because Roz knows where almost every Lazarus pit on the planet is and uses them at his discretion whenever he needs to recharge his life force energy. Most people, however, if they go into the Lazarus pit, will go insane. This is what Roz is telling his acolytes who are standing guard. That the temptation is so heavy to live forever, but I promise you, it is a dark and dangerous and sometimes crazy place. But Talia doesn't think so. We see her, right arm raised, pistol in hand, while she drags a young rope figure forward with her left. She says, perhaps death, perhaps more. Before pushing the figure into the Lazarus pit, we get an for Infinite Crisis Aftermath on the next page. This was a group of titles that were set to launch after Infinity Crisis, the event that brought Jason Todd back to life, wrapped up. We have Blue Beetle, Checkmate, Ion, my favorite Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, in a godlike Green Lantern role, Shadow Pack, a super team that deals with magic, the Spectre, DC Spirit of Vengeance for God, scary stuff, and the Secret Six led by Catman. This story in particular, written by Gail Simone, is one of the greatest comic reads I've ever had the pleasure to run through and own. Gotta love Catman, gotta love Gail Simone. Shout out to the Fairly Odd Parents who put Catman on screen. Page 28 opens and we see it was Jason Talia pushed into the Lazarus pit. He struggles on instinct at first before sinking into the pool of orange liquid.
Jason submerged beneath the waves, and we get a beautiful splash page of Jason Todd in all his Robin glory. Red tunic, green undies and boots, green gloves, yellow cape. He is all smile swinging from a grapple line, his left knee up. In the upper right, we have a somber image of Batman. In the lower left, a smiling Joker with raised crowbar. On the lower right, Talia in profile and all her majesty. As Jason struggles in a Lazarus pit, we get two caption boxes. The first says, Many things can jog a memory. The next, But few things can give those memories life. And we get to page 30 as a naked Jason, covered in Lazarus pit juices, burst from the pit screaming. We see Talia in the next panel on the edge of the pit. She has a hand extended out to Jason and she tells him to come with her now. Jason says, What? What is happening to me? So we know his body and mind are healed enough to speak now. And in the final panel, we see him take Talia's hand as Roz bursts from the Lazarus pit, answering Jason's questions by shouting, A deceitful child has spurned her father. Roz clearly is self-absorbed because Jason asks what's happening to him, not what's going on with you, Roz. Sheesh, me, me, me over there. We see Jason and Talia sprinting from the palace on page 31 as Roz tells Jason that he cursed his soul. But I think Jason believes, like I do, that life is for the living and anything's gotta be better than being vegetable. So he and Talia break towards the woods on the edge of the palace, shrouded by darkness. Talia in the lead, a duffel bag bouncing against her waist. Jason has questions. He tries to ask, saying, Talia, what the hell do you... Where was? But Talia cuts him off. She says, There is no time. I did what I thought was right. What I thought you deserved. Do not go and find him, Jason. Learn the truth before you do. In the next panel, we see Jason as Talia, throwing a purple gloved hand around Jason's head, finishes her thought saying, you remain unavenged. She pulls him into a kiss that she enjoys. Her eyes roll back while Jason's eyes are wide with shock. Again, you shouldn't just be out here grabbing and kissing people. But immediately after the kiss, Talia shoves Jason off the edge of a dark cliff with the duffel bag in his hands. We see him tumble, fumble, bumble down into the darkness before falling into the ocean with a loud splash in the final panel. Page 32 opens up with us 126 miles south outside of the Hotel de Dos Leon, a beige building with green piping. We find out that Jason swam to the nearest shore where Talia left the motorcycle for him. I love that she wasn't worried at all about Jason surviving that drop. We're inside the hotel room now and we see a gray laptop turned on atop a table surrounded by American dollars and euros and rubber bands. There's a passport on the table in the duffel bag that all of these items came from. The caption box here tells us everything Jason needed was in the bag. The panel shifts and we see it really is everything, including the details of his death and the time after that Jason didn't know about. The next panel we see Jason. He's at this desk, topless, all the files and documents in his hands, his eyes shrouded in darkness as he reads the different papers. We get a close-up on Jason's face, then a close-up on the headlines as we see that they are all about crimes that the Joker has committed. And if you know the Joker, he's been busy, escaping from Arkham, murdering eight people, claiming more victims, fleeing the law, and we hear Talio's words again. You remain unavenged. In the final panel, we see Jason's clenched jaw as he mutters, You son of a bitch! Under his breath, he is pissed. How dare Joker live in a world where he died? We turn the page and get an ad for a comic called Batman Secrets. In this ad, Batman has a hand around the Joker's throat, a bloody fist raised. Joker's got a black swollen eye and bloody teeth. But if you know Joker, you know that smile is still plastered on his face. I have this miniseries. It is an amazing read and it's in collection, so it will come up eventually as a bonus episode, I hope. On the Pippin page, 33, Jason snaps! We see the money flying across the room, the Joker papers flying. Jason throws a lamp through the in-room TV and stares at his soothing reflection in the mirror for a moment before putting a fist through it. He's treating this hotel room like Evanescence on their Anywhere But Home tour. Rockstar lifestyle. He already ain't make it. In the final panel, we see a Gotham City newspaper headline, maybe the Gotham Gazette. It's covered in the shards from the mirror. In it, the Joker is in an orange jumpsuit, perma-smile on his face as the headline reads, 
Batman returns Joker to police custody. Jason's seen all he needs to. On page 34, he resolves to set out on a quest like Batman's. Travel the world becoming the best at what he does. His eye is black and sinister in the first panel before we see him in the next panel training. There is a warrior monk in the foreground sitting between two lit torches as Jason, hands behind his back, white pants and a sash fluttering behind him, flips toward an opponent in striped pants, leaning back in full-on matrix mode to dodge. The next panel, we see Jason manage to salvage the laptop. On it, he's talking to Talia. And Talia's been busy. She's bought stock in Wayne Tech. She's found the original coffin maker. And she's added funds into an account. He tells Jason to enjoy it and says, P.S. There's a guy named Hush that he should meet. Hush was a Batman storyline that ran in the early 2000s that saw Batman running a gauntlet of villains trying to get to a shadowy figure named, you guessed it, Hush. And Hush was hellbent on destroying him. So we're at this point in history now and Talia is telling Jason he should meet Hush. The next panel, we see a replacement coffin being lowered into the ground in place of Jason's to cover his tracks. And in the final scene, we get a shot of Jason's mouth as he says, I hear you're working, Batman. We're on page 35 now and we see Jason in his red domino mask and black leather jacket outside at night. He's in the background of the panel. He is talking to Hush who's standing in the foreground. I've always thought Hush has a great look. The man wears a trench coat and never leaves his house without surgeon band-aids wrapping his face. And Hush, answering Jason's question, says maybe he is working the bat. What does Jason care? And Jason replies, I can help. You want to get into his head? I'm your way in. The next panel, we get a gorgeously drawn panel of Batman, his cowl in darkness as rain falls behind him in a red negative space. We hear Jason screaming at him off panel. When we do see Jason, he is wearing a brown trench coat with a blue shirt that has red piping running down both sides of his chest. He has the Robin insignia on his chest, but the only outline of the R is yellow. All the rest in the circle is black. Jason's wearing brown gloves, his domino mask, and he has a tuft of white hair growing out of the front of his head in contrast to the rest of his black hair. We get a caption box saying Jason had to see him. Who? The Batman. And maybe Jason got more than he bargained for because Batman's in this panel too, throwing a vicious right uppercut that's connected with Jason's jaws, sending him reeling as lightning strikes in the background, illuminating the headstones of the graves around them. Page 36 opens to the most skilled fighter in the history of comic books giving Jason the full hands team. First panel, we see Batman crack Jason across the chin with a left hook, sending blood flying from his mouth. Next panel, Batman catches Jason with a roundhouse kick flush across the chin. More blood flying. The sky is red. Rain is falling and Jason thinks while he's taking this beating that he just wanted to see Batman. Not as a man but as the creature Batman created. And Jason thinks he just wants to see regret in Batman's eyes. But the Batman's made of sterner stuff and none of it's regret. We see Batman's face in this panel and he's watching Jason hightail it through the cemetery. Batman beat the brakes off the kid and made him regret his decision in two panels. The world's greatest, the Bronx's very own, Bruce Wayne, AKA the Batman. Shout out to Bill Finger. All of this took place during the Hush storyline, around the middle of the story. At the time, we don't believe it's really Jason fighting Batman, and in the next panel, we see why. We've got Batman's shape-changing villain Clayface here, and for those unfamiliar with Clayface, Clayface can take the form of anyone on the planet, and we see him here as Jason runs off, transforming into the former Robin. During Hush, the switch happened so fast that Batman believes Jason was Clayface the whole time, despite a nagging suspicion that there was something he didn't know. And we see Bats in that moment of the Hush storyline in the final panel as he holds a smoking brown trench coat. So Jason's escaped onto page 37 and we see him, rain pouring around him, his fist clenched near his face, and he is screaming in rage. Next panel, we see Jason pulling the chain rope to a metal gate, the rain still pouring behind him. And in the final panel, we see Jason enter his safe house. He throws his trench coat onto a chair in front of a high-tech computer monitor. We see he has an armory of weapons towards the back of the room as he walks deeper into his base. 
We get an ad here this time for Justice Statues. Justice was a 12-issue maxi-series that was a great story with art by the living legend Alex Ross. I have all of those issues. That thing was a beauty to read. Hopefully it comes up. Jason stops in front of a three-court board wall on page 38, and we see this board is designed like Robert Nash's in a beautiful mind. Just pictures in red string with thumbtacks tying things together. But everything on the wall either has to do with Gotham City or the Joker. We get a close-up on Jason Todd now, almost four years later, and we can see he is a young man. He stares at the board with a chiseled jaw and resolved look in his eyes. The caption box says, he is Jason Todd. The next panel, we see Jason's gloved hand ripping one of the tacked images on the cork board off. It says... Red Hood crime spree continues. In the final panel, we zoom in on the empty spot and now the only writing we can make out on the papers left on the corkboard is a light blue sheet that says Joker. The final caption box says, make no mistake, it is him. And we're out. We get an ad for one year later, the event that followed Infinite Crisis and that brings the issue to a close. Jason will go on to take the mantle of the Red Hood, which is believed to be by many Joker's first criminal alias. I think by taking up the mantle of the Red Hood, Jason was making a point to both Batman and the Joker that yeah, you both have made me, but I'm going to take what you've given, in the case of Batman the skills, in the case of Joker the crazy, and live my life by my rules. I've read this comic so much, the black ink of the cover has my fingerprints on it. It is truly, truly a beautifully drawn, well-crafted tale that pulls the whole DC universe in. And I remember when this story first began. Jim Hanley's universe was packed for months as the story unfolded. I still remember the moment Batman realized the Red Hood was his ward, a one Jason Peter Todd, and I recommend that story, Under the Red Hood, to anyone who loves a good action adventure, especially this one that follows one of the most tumultuous relationships in comics. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for running with me as I cover Batman Annual Volume 1, Number 25, Daedalus and Icarus, The Return of Jason Todd. I'm so glad you came along for the ride. Come back next week as we dive into the long boxes again. This time, we're running Fallen Angel number 26 from IDW. As Lee, the Fallen Angel herself, tries to stop her former lover Malachi from ruling Bette Noire with an iron fist. I hope you're not squeamish because there will be blood. Please like and comment and please think of the world and remember, with great power, you already know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.